Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Imagine if one day you found out that you had family members you never knew existed. Now imagine in that same instance, you find out that they were murdered. That's what happened to journalist Pamela Everett. She thought she knew her father pretty well. One day when she was 15, she lied to her father and she spent the night with her boyfriend. When her father found out, his reaction surprised her. Instead of being angry with her, He seemed shaken by the incident, and he insisted that she must always be honest about her whereabouts and never make him search for her like he did that night. Being the typical teenager, she just yelled back and declared that he never let her do anything. Then she noticed that he was fighting back tears. And then that's when he said, I lost two sisters and I can't lose my daughter. They found them. They found their pairs of little shoes lined up in a row. And with that, he refused to say any more. And she had no idea what he was talking about. He'd never mentioned these sisters before, and he wouldn't after. When he died, Pamela then went on a quest to find out who these sisters were and what thing happened to them. Pamela Everett did extensive research into the murder of her aunts and their friend Jeanette. 
and eventually she put everything together in a book titled Little Shoes, The Sensational Depression-Era Murders That Became My Family's Secret. I had never heard of these murders before, and I read the book without being able to put it down. It's absolutely phenomenal. Since I never heard of what happened, I mainly used this book as my main resource. I highly recommend that you go out and get a copy. Her years as a journalist shine through, and the writing makes you so intrigued to know what happens next. This week, I'll explore the murders of Jeanette Stevens and Madeline and Marie Everett. In 1937, three little girls disappeared after spending a day playing at Sentinella Park in Inglewood, California. And not long after, their bodies were discovered by some Boy Scouts in a canyon nearby. When a suspect was quickly apprehended, the families breathed a sigh of relief. But when he recanted his confession, some began to doubt if the right man was in custody. Just to let you know, this case does go into some very graphic detail concerning children, so I just want to give you a heads up about that in case this is one you want to skip. First, let's go into a little background about the girls, their families, and where they lived. The Everett family moved from Boston to California in 1934. This was the time of the Depression, and parents Melba and Merle were trying to make the best life they could for their kids. Merle got work as a machinist in Inglewood, California. Friends of the family described them as very Bostonian, you know, tea drinking, very proper, with strong values. The Everett's consisted of six children, which were three boys and three girls. The oldest was Pamela's father, Pearlie Mandel, then Olive, Merle, Melba Marie, Madeline Phyllis, and then the youngest boy, Carl and their age range went from 12 to 4 years old. After the move, the family got back on their feet, and they started to make a good life for themselves, making a home at 571 East Hazel Street in Inglewood, which was right across the street from Sentinella Park. Merle later told a Los Angeles Times reporter that they moved to Hazel Street, quote, so that our children could take advantage of the play hours in the nearby park. I felt that this was the best thing that we'd done for the children since we moved to California. And the kids went to the park practically every day. It provided everything to entertain the children in the summertime. It had a pool, lots of other kids playing, and lots of trees. And that's where Melba Marie and Madeline were on Saturday, June 26th of 1937. In fact, they were under their favorite tree with an old army blanket and an umbrella. They brought a thermos of milk, and they were ready for a picnic. Later in the day, their older sister, Olive, planned to join them, but first she had chores to do. For the time being, they were joined by several friends, including 8-year-old Jeanette Stevens, who lived a few doors down. Eventually, most of the girls left, leaving the trio of Melba, Madeline, and Jeanette to play on their own. Right before early afternoon, Jeanette ran to the pool attendant asking for a piece of rope. She excitedly told her about Eddie the sailor, who wanted to show them some rope tricks. They had met this man the day before when he had shown them how he could throw his wrist out of joint while doing rope tricks. And he wanted to take the girls rabbit hunting with him in the Baldwin Hills. Eddie the sailor said each girl could keep a bunny and he promised to take them in his car and bring them right back. 
and he said it was okay because he had a wife and a child. That day, Olive was there, and she refused to let the girls go. And that night, she told her mother of the incident, and their mother sternly warned their daughters about going anywhere with a strange man. So after getting some rope, Jeanette ran back to their tree. And then not long after, a teen that was sunning by the pool noticed a man with a little blonde girl holding her hand and leading her away from the pool. Shortly after that, Marie found another pool attendant, Mr. Flynn, asking him to watch over their playthings and blanket. The girl said that they were going to go hunt rabbits. Later in the afternoon, a Standard Oil employee saw some smoke rising out of the hills. Fearing that a campfire had gotten out of control, he went to investigate. That's when he remembered seeing a man come out of the hills near a ravine and get into a Ford Roadster without fenders and with a box in the back. Around 5.30, a chauffeur recalled seeing a crossing guard coming from the Baldwin Hills. He thought it was very odd to see one because it was Saturday. Around that same time, Margaret Rigby, who lived between the park and Baldwin Hills, remembered seeing a man run by with what looked like blood on its clothing. By 6.30, the Stevens and Everett families were worried because the girls had not come home from the park. It was unusually late, and they would have been home for dinner by then. After Olive went to look for them and she came back empty-handed, that worry became more eminent. During that time, it was protocol to wait for a period of 24 hours for a missing person's report to be filed. But at the insistence of the parents, Captain Muir notified his police chief, Oscar Campbell, of the situation. So around 11 p.m., Campbell officially filed the missing persons report. He ordered every Inglewood officer into the station, as well as putting L.A. Police and Sheriff's Department on alert. After hearing the stories of the man leading Jeanette away from the pool, the rabbit hunt and the rope tricks, the disappearance of the girls took a very ominous turn. In addition to the police, Boy Scouts, and a local group of citizens were organized to join in the search. By daylight, they had not turned up anything on the girls. Then the search was expanded to outlying areas like the Baldwin Hills and South La Brea. Since this was more rugged terrain, search planes were used as well as the Santa Monica Mounted Police. In all, over 500 people were looking for the three missing girls. All the different departments worked in conjunction to help find the trio. Olive was able to give a very detailed description of Eddie the sailor. She said he was wearing blue overalls, a khaki work shirt, and donning a very small black mustache. After looking over some mugshots, she identified Othel Leroy Strong. Several other adults said Strong was Eddie the Sailor and that he drove a Ford Roadster with a box on the back. An ice delivery man remembers seeing the car that morning with two little girls in the front and one in the box in the back with a man matching Strong driving. Police looked into the background of Othel Strong and they found a very disturbing incident. Six months earlier, he'd been charged with the rape of a 14-year-old girl but had pled guilty to a lesser charge and he walked away with probation. So he looked like a very strong suspect. The two families were extremely distraught. 
The newspapers were all over them, asking for interviews and snapping photographs. Pamela Everett was able to find many archive photos of her relatives at this distressing time. The other siblings looked very anxious and a bit bewildered, you know, not really understanding the whole situation. Merle Everett admitted to reporters that he went to the garage to cry because he didn't want his wife to see him break down. Waiting for news had them on pins and needles. It had been days since they went missing. But sadly, it would not be long until they knew what happened. On Monday, the 28th, the girls' bodies were discovered. Three Boy Scouts had gotten to a deep ravine when one of the boys saw Marie's feet. She was lying face down on the ground with a rope wound tightly around her neck. Her finger was caught in the rope as if she was trying to free herself. She was covered in blood, mud, and brush. One Boy Scout troop stayed while the others went to notify police. They waited for help rather than look for the other girls. When help came, they found the other two. Jeanette was at the bottom of the canyon. She was also face down with her dress over her head, leaving her bloody legs exposed. A rope was wound tightly around her neck. Seventy-five feet up the canyon, they found Madeline also face down, also strangled by a rope. It had appeared that all three had been sexually assaulted, and their shoes were all lined up in a row. Near the entrance of the ravine, police found a thermos of milk and Madeline's cherished Mickey Mouse book. About a half mile away, they found a pair of denim overalls with what looked like blood on them. This was the worst possible outcome the families could have expected, and rightfully they were devastated. The police were trying to narrow down a suspect list by going through files of every degenerate and pedophile in the area. Then 14-year-old Mike Huerta came to the station to inform Chief Campbell of a very suspicious character that he'd encountered. He said a crossing guard near the park had tried to previously get him and several other boys to go on a walk with him. The man was always there in the evenings, but not that Saturday that the girls had disappeared. He finally appeared later that night, but he was jittery and he acted very odd. That same man joined in the search for the girls. And the chief distinctly remembered him because he was so insistent on helping. That man was named Albert Dyer. When taken in for questioning, Dyer said he'd been working in his yard all day and his wife was home and would confirm his alibi. So police just let him go. The public was demanding that the killer be caught. Lynch mobs declared that they would deal with this monster. Police were under intense pressure to find out who was responsible and fast. Their one suspect for Eddie the Sailor, Othel Strong, was cleared of any suspicion. Soon, another man fit the description. That man was Fred Godsey, who had a sister living in Inglewood. 39-year-old Godsey was a soon-to-be-divorced father of one. And he had a very dark complexion due to his Cherokee heritage. Godsey was intelligent, but he had a dark side. When he drank, he became very violent, often beating his wife. And his wife declared he had a penchant for underage girls and had been arrested for molestation. In addition to all of that, he was known for entertaining kids with card tricks and tricks with his hands. 
He was known to some as Freddy the Sailor, and he looked remarkably like Othel Strong. Margaret Rigby identified him as the man she had seen running with blood on his clothes. And a girl at the park said he was the one who could turn his wrist back and he entertained the children with his tricks. The most damning blow was when Olive said that he was the man who tried to get the girls to go with him the Friday before her sisters disappeared. The one her mother had warned them not to go away with. So it seems like Gonsi was now the prime suspect. But that all changed when George Ray went to police on July 2nd. Ray was an employee at the clinic where the girls' autopsies were performed. He said Albert Dyer talked to him that night, the same night the girls' bodies were brought in. And he knew information and details that no one could have known at that point, which was very disturbing to Ray. Word must have gotten back to Dyer because he burst into the station, demanding to know what police wanted with him. And after they said they weren't looking for him, he left. But after that incident, they decided they needed to keep a close eye on Dyer. Detectives William and Chandler went to his home to obtain him for more questioning. On the way to the station, they asked Dyer to show him where he was at the time of the search. He directed them towards a dirt road near the entrance to the ravine. That's where he was when he heard the Boy Scouts had found the girls. When they finally made it to the station, they subjected Dyer to intense questioning, and initially he denied killing the girls. After hours of interrogation, sometime after 8 p.m., Dyer confessed. When going over the transcripts of his confession, Pamela Everett noticed a very disturbing detail. As a journalist and a lawyer, she was familiar with false confessions, and this one sounded like it. Instead of providing his own details, Dyer basically answered yes-no questions that were given to him. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. By the police. 
they led the direction of the questions. This type of questioning let them narrate the story. Dyer didn't provide any information. In fact, he got many details wrong or he changed what he initially said. One huge inconsistency was the order in which he said he killed the girls. It changed several times. Pamela notes that when he was questioned, it was 30 years before Miranda rights were in effect. Before he talked to a lawyer, he was interrogated for 10 hours. That's in addition to the tactic of driving him to where the bodies were found. Luckily for Dyer, he had confessed in Los Angeles, so he avoided the growing lynch mob outside of Inglewood City Hall. He was officially charged with three counts of first-degree murder on July 5th. Albert Dyer was raised as a foster child by Etta and Grant Young. With only a fourth-grade level education, he quit school very early. He worked for a while as a laborer before becoming a crossing guard. The only trouble he'd ever been in was for vagrancy and some burglary. However, nothing sexual or violent was in his past. Dyer was examined by four psychiatrists who all agreed that he was feeble-minded, perhaps due to his IQ of 60. But he was competent to stand trial. Dyer was married to a woman named Isabel who did not do well in the spotlight. There are some photos of her covering her face and weeping over her husband's arrest. She stood by him despite the confession. Another person not sure of his guilt was Madeline and Melba's mother. She told reporters, No one in the whole world is more eager to have the guilty man caught than I am. But I can't help wondering if the authorities have the right one. There are so many points where Albert Dyer's story doesn't tally with the facts. She was convinced that if Dyer actually led the girls to the ravine on his long walk, that Marie would have become suspicious and broken away. The story did not sit well with her. There were also several people who saw the man in the park, and they were insistent that it was not Dyer. 12-year-old Amy Lancy said she saw Fred Godsey in the park Saturday morning and later that night. His clothes were torn and he had scratches on his face. Olive knew Dyer from his crossing guard duties and she said he was not the man. So you have a man with a very low IQ who only confessed after hours of interrogation. His facts change from time to time and many say he wasn't the man in the park. And then you have Godsey, who matched the description of Eddie the sailor, with a car matching the one seen. In her research, Pamela found an article that had an interview with a friend of his. He said Godsey was the cruelest person he'd ever known. He'd once chewed off a man's ear in a bar fight. And he had no problems with inflicting pain on others. And this friend also confirmed his history of molesting girls but the authorities were convinced that Dyer was the killer, especially after his confession. The trial was sent. Dyer, however, seemed to not understand the trouble that he was in. He told reporters, I hope I get probation so I can go back to my wife and get a good job and buy her some pretty things. He smiled and posed for pictures outside the jail. And it wasn't until he learned that he would face the death penalty that reality actually set in. 
Dyer pleaded not guilty to all three counts. He was represented by a public defender named Frederick Verco, and it would be a tough case to try to win, but Verco was convinced the confession was coerced and that his client was the wrong man. As he was quoted as saying, I've had nearly 25 years experience in the handling of criminal cases, but the Dyer case is one of the most difficult I've ever handled. The subnormal mental condition of the defendant, he being rated mentally as 10 years of age or less, makes it difficult to reach a satisfying conclusion as to the case. All the while, Haskell Wright, the man who said Dyer was innocent, kept to his claims. He maintained Dyer was not the man he saw with the children in the park. But his claims fell on deaf ears. And in a very odd turn of events, Olive Everett came forward, saying that Wright had molested her the year before in the park. In a bizarre account, she said four men had attacked her in the park, but only Wright had molested her. Wright denied the accusation and many testified that they'd never seen him around any girls in the park. So was this the DA's attempt to try to discredit Wright because he said Dyer was innocent? Pamela was unable to find the outcome of this hearing for Haskell Wright, and because her Aunt Olive had passed away, she couldn't question her about it. It was a strange side note in an already odd time. District Attorney Fitz conducted an experiment for the court to back up the claim of two witnesses who said that they saw the girls walking to Baldwin Hills with the man who looked like Dyer. To take away any doubt that this was possible, he had three girls, the same ages of the murdered ones, walk the same path. And Fitz had his own investigator, Everett Davis, follow on foot with two LAPD detectives. Fitz proved to the jury that the walk was possible for the girls to have made. When the trial began, it was a media sensation. Dyer was dubbed the Pied Piper. It was presided over by Judge White, and Dyer was represented by public defenders William Neely and Ellery Cuff, while the defense had William Simpson and Eugene Williams. Pamela was able to find pictures of her grandparents in the courtroom, just a few feet away from Dyer. Her grandfather's eyes looked very distant. The Stevens family could not handle the court experience. Albert Dyer spent his time fluctuating between hysterics and indifference. At this point, he was adamant about not being involved in the crimes. He said, I didn't do it. I couldn't do such a thing. This is a terrible thing for an innocent man to have to face. The right man will come along someday and really confess to those crimes after I'm dead and gone, and then it'll be too late to save me. He declared he only confessed because he was threatened by police. The details of the crimes were graphically explained by D.A. Williams to the court. He told of how each girl was murdered and then sexually assaulted post-mortem. It was enough to cause one of the jurors to collapse. Albert Dyer wept when he heard the description of what happened. After a brief recess, they were back at it. The jury got to see firsthand the ropes that were around the girls' necks. The next day, witnesses were put on the stand to say that they had seen a man matching Dyer's description. But that was the problem. It was just a description. Many of them could not positively say that it was Albert Dyer, just someone who had looked like him. 
For two days in a row, Dyer collapsed when he was taken back to his cell. He fought and screamed at the guards. Once in a cell, he refused to eat or sleep, so they kept him on suicide watch. His wife wasn't sure of his innocence or guilt, and this was perhaps due to her unhealthy emotional state. Having the one person on his side now be in doubt also had to take a toll on Dyer. Next came the medical testimony, which was incredibly graphic. Dyer's genitals had been minutely examined because it was concluded the crimes would have caused violent stretching of the foreskin backward. But Dyer didn't have any such irregularities. Then came the testimony from the autopsy surgeon, Dr. A.F. Wagner. Every awful detail was gone over. The bruises, the rope, vaginal and rectal tearing, the morgue photographs. Every injury of each girl was gone over. Wagner testified the internal tears in the girls were made by something other than a male organ, most likely someone's hands, and the injuries would have resulted in blood hemorrhage. When Pamela read this testimony, she immediately thought about how she heard about Fred Godsey could tear a phone book apart with his bare hands, and of how he was said to enjoy pain and suffering. There was once again more testimony from those who couldn't quite say for sure if they'd seen Dyer that day or not. Cuff and Neely wanted to strike the confession from the record, but they had no luck. Finally, the defense rested. During closing statements, the defense tried to once again show that the true perpetrator was Eddie the Sailor and not Albert Dyer. They brought up the testimony of Lillian Pop, who was in the park that day. They said this was a child who knew Dyer well. She played that morning in the park, and those three children were later murdered. She was there when they were invited by the strange man to go on a rabbit hunt, and they left with him, and she said that man was not Dyer. After presenting the lack of physical evidence, Cuff once again reminded everyone of those three little pairs of shoes and how no fingerprints were found anywhere on them. There is reasonable doubt, and you must find Albert Dyer not guilty. But Williams wouldn't let the courtroom go without reminding them what a monster he was. Dyer strangled those children with ropes. Those murders were premeditated. Why were they premeditated, you asked? Their ravished bodies revealed an unbridled passion, an insatiable lust. That was the motivating power that drove this inhuman wretch to this horrible deed. When the jury first went into deliberation, they were deadlocked 9-3 to three over the penalty issue. When they returned the next day, they wondered if they could decide the penalty based on Dyer's mental state. And the judge said they could not base guilt or innocence based just on his mental state. They were having trouble because he had such a low IQ. They also wondered if Dyer specifically identified any of the shoes worn by the girls. And they wanted a map of the ravine, obviously doubting whether or not it was walked the whole way or not. Later, the judge polled them and found that they were deadlocked 11 to 1 without showing which direction they leaned. Finally, after some time, the verdict came in. He was found guilty of first-degree murder in all three counts. Albert Dyer was emotionless. 
The jury voted for him to hang. As the courtroom emptied out, Dyer asked his attorneys, what does first degree mean? Dyer was sent to San Quentin and was to be sentenced to death on September 16th of 1938. Haskell Wright still fought to get someone to try to recognize that Dyer was innocent. He took it all the way to the governor's office. But it provided no help for Albert Dyer. At 10.03 on September 16th, two hangmen pulled their levers and the floor dropped below Albert Dyer. Fifty-four spectators came to see him hang. In the end, justice was most likely not served. Dyer really didn't seem to fit the description of the killer, and Fred Godsey did. Pamela followed his trail of crime through the papers. He had 52 entries in a report from the FBI ranging from forgery, assault, burglary, to indecent liberties with a child. He died in 1949. Judging from the evidence, Godsey is most likely the killer. And that means an innocent man was hung for another man's crimes. Sadly, I wish I could say that that was a thing of the past. Luckily, today we have DNA which is exonerating many convicted of crimes they did not commit. The only thing that seems to get you a good trial is having lots of money for a high-profile lawyer. Justice really seems to still be out of the hands of the poor. That was the story of The Little Shoes. Please go out and read Pamela Everett's book. Although I did recount most of the story, I couldn't tell it with the same passion that Pamela did. These were her lost aunts. She did say that she was able to visit their graves, which did bring her some peace. I think if they could see her, they would be very proud that she would want to find the truth of what happened to them. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I want to say thank you to Gunn Christensen from Norway for the really nice review on Facebook. I really appreciate it. Check out the page and join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. I'm also on Twitter at Blonde Red Rum and on Instagram. And there's still awesome merchandise on tpublic.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.